Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to a special edition of Newsweek's Foreign Service, recorded live at the Wilderness Festival. I'm Serena Kaczynski the digital editor in our London office, and I chaired the lively debate which asked the question, is outsider politics here to stay? Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Newsweek debate. Is outsider politics here to stay? When we first chose this topic uh, back in the spring, I was a bit worried that by August it might not be so relevant, that we might be living in a calm post-referendum world where Britain was still in the European Union, Uh, Donald Trump had abandoned his hopes of becoming the Republican presidential candidate, Boris Johnson definitely wasn't Foreign Secretary, And the Labour Party, well, it was still in some form of harmonious disarray. The reality today, as we all know, couldn't be more different. It feels now like politics is changing, possibly forever. Mainstream parties and politicians are being pushed out of power by an electorate angry at what they perceive as a morally bankrupt elite. (laughs) Campaigns are won and lost on social media. The traditional axis of left and right feels increasingly redundant. But what I would like our esteemed panel here today, who I will introduce again shortly, to think about is, and all of you, is this a passing fad, fueled by anger at the government's mismanagement of the global financial crisis, or is this a seismic and significant shift in our politics, which will redefine it for the 21st century? So, here today to consider all these big questions are Isabel Oakshot, a Newsweek contributor, Daily Mail political editor at large, and author of a biography, co-author, sorry, about David Cameron. Larry Sanders, brother of the Democratic Senator Bernie and the UK Green Party's health spokesperson. George Galloway, who a campaigner, politician, probably needs very little introduction to most of you. Uh, James Schneider. Sorry. Come on. 
James Schneider, the national organizer of Momentum. And for those of you not familiar with Momentum, it is the campaigning organization that was set up in the wake of Jeremy Corbyn's 2015 Labour leadership victory. And last, but by no means least, and here to add some serious philosophical gravitas to the debate, Robert Roland Smith, esteemed author and philosopher, and possibly familiar to those of you who are wilderness regulars. So I'd like to start by asking Larry, what do you think when we say outsider politics? Obviously, your brother sparked a serious movement in the, in the US that may have a long-term impact on the Democratic president, Hillary, if she is, you know, candidate, if she gets elected. What is outsider politics? How do you define it? I probably don't define outsider politics. Uh, I don't think Bernard is an outsider politics. I don't think Jeremy is an outsider politics. Uh, what I do think is that there is a seismic change, and it's a seismic change because the economic world has changed. We've had 40 years of increased inequality where wealth and income have been shifted, drawn, uh, corrupted from the bulk of the population to the very rich people. And that's beginning to have an immense impact on people from all walks of life. So the politics has changed. It's very much, in my opinion, a left-right traditional in a sense, except that the traditions are changing. Um, the social media, I'll, I'll tell you, I don't understand it at all. It obviously is significant. It's significant good because it's allowed, say, Bernard to raise millions of, of dollars that he wouldn't have otherwise done. It's significant bad because if you read it, it's full of the most moronic comments that you'll ever find in the world. So it's, it's obviously unleashed a lot. Uh, but I think we're in the midst of a real political battle. We'll either have a chance to have a decent society, which is not, which is within our grasp, or we will continue uh, toward destruction. Brilliant, James. Social media, something momentum knows quite a lot about. Do you see it as a force for good in politics, or what about the claims of abuse and trolling that go on? How could it and should it be used in future? Like anything else in society, social media isn't a good thing or a bad thing. It's a thing. Um, and uh, it's an incredibly powerful thing because it's something that um, allows for people to communicate and to talk on their own behalf. And it does change, I think, dramatically um, how political messaging works, how political communication works. Because when you get people who have clear... Um, uh, principled positions, whatever they may be, and that's the sorts of things that um, inspire people and then they talk about it more. And that is the new way, I think, in which um, uh, political messages get communicated, rather than trying to butt up against the news agenda would be of, you want me to talk about abuse? No. <laughs> uh, we can get on to abuse. Uh, the, the, what, the echo chamber, the use of slogans, the feeling that somehow everyone thinks the way you do that social media tends to generate because it is a certain demographic that tends to gravitate towards it. Well, if you look at my app mentions, it doesn't look like everybody agrees with me, um, especially not this morning. Uh, uh, it, isn't, it isn't just an echo chamber, but yeah, I mean you're more likely to speak to people that uh, you're friends with and might have similar views. But that's the same thing in the real world as well. And you can, if you use 
in ways to meet with people who have completely different views to you, have completely different life experiences, and you can populate what you what of the world you see through that. It, and I think there's a lot that attempts to shut down people speaking, and it is the oldest trick in the book that Paris always used that people speaking democracy is the mob and it's unruly and it's dangerous and yes it's like life it's not um it's not always pretty and people get angry but it's something that is something that we it's something that we need and it's something very powerful and it's something that can be ours George, you've obviously been a politician. You know, you said you've been elected six times to Parliament, etc. You see, you, you predate the social media age, if you don't mind me saying so. Uh, what is your view on how this sort of increasing fragmentation of our politics is happening and these big social movements that are rising up and actually having quite significant impact? Well, I have more than one million followers on social media and I talk to them all day. So I may, uh, I may predate Bra humble it. Humble brag. I may, I may predate it, but I early on recognised its significance. Because now I don't have to ask the editor of The Guardian if I can say what I want to say. I say it anyway, and I say it all day and every day to that million people. I disagree with Larry. I think insider politics, like the camel, is difficult to define but easy to recognise. It's Tweedledee and Tweedledum. It's two cheeks of the same arse. And people are increasingly keen to give it a smack. And that sometimes takes a left form, sometimes takes a right-wing form, but it is the prevailing orthodoxy. Dr. Johnson said the grimmest dictatorship of them all is the dictatorship of the prevailing orthodoxy. And that's the dictatorship that people are now trying to tear down because it's brought us nothing but war, inequality, division, racism, and the immiseration of much of the globe. And if that's capitalism, no thanks. That's what most people, I think, are feeling towards. Very interesting. Isabel, obviously, we've talked a bit about populism in terms of the left, but also often populism is actually more traditionally associated with the right, with nationalism, potentially xenophobia. I know you've spent time with UKIP during the Brexit campaign. What is driving their ineluctable, seemingly ineluctable rise? Is this a grassroots populism or are they at risk of going mainstream and therefore disconnecting from that grassroots? Well, um, I am just recently back from going to the Republican convention in the States and uh, was traveling in a party that included Nigel Farage, the now resigned leader of the UK Independence Party. And I was absolutely amazed by the extent of the following that he has out there. Not particularly popular here, but wherever we went in America, and this wasn't just around the convention where clearly people are very politicised, he was being recognised and asked for selfies and, you know, clearly Brexit had struck a chord well beyond Britain and the EU. So I thought that was very significant and a lot of people were drawing parallels between uh, Brexit and the influence of Farage and uh, the rise of Donald Trump. And I think it is very significant uh, and 
part of my day job is talking to MPs all day, every day, and something I'm detecting is that whilst there's an assumption uh, that our politicians are powerful, actually, a lot of our MPs, and particularly, I may say, on the Labour side at the moment, are feeling very disempowered. And the huge changes that are coming about, and clearly Brexit is the most powerful example of that, are being driven from outside Westminster by forces that I think uh, some of our politicians feel unable to control. And it's interesting that some MPs now feel they might actually be able to effect more change from outside Parliament rather than in it. I think that's very interesting. Robert, from a sort of philosophical point of view, why are people so pissed off? Life in 21st century Britain is pretty good, isn't it? And yet why, you know, particularly, I know the word Brexit is going to have been said today so many times, but as someone said earlier, Brexit effectively, two fingers up at the establishment. Why is there this anger? Um, I'm not sure there's a huge amount of anger. Um among certain constituencies. I mean, uh, we were at a festival which seems to be attended by people who seem to me pretty well-off, affluent, comfortable, and so on. I don't feel a lot of anger uh, here. I don't feel that being given off. Um, what I'd say is that actually the, the most important reaction at the moment is not the pissed-offness, it's the surprise. I think it's surprise that an event has happened or a series of events have happened that we didn't necessarily anticipate. And to that extent, I think it's probably too soon to draw any conclusions. It's like that famous statement about, you know, the causes, of the, the effects of the French Revolution still won't be known well into the 20th century. And I think that's important because whatever else has happened, you know, we have been jolted by surprise. And that's an extremely valuable thing for us as citizens to experience because it jolts us out of preconceived notions about how history should unfold. I think the danger is, and I think maybe George is hinting at this, is that the kind of prevailing orthodoxy just feels this as a momentary jolt before getting back on its course again. And uh, I think that's always the default tendency of any prevailing orthodoxy, orthodoxy because it has the resources precisely to return to its state of inertia because that's the default, it's the path of least energy. And a state, a national state, is like a Freudian psychic state. It hates expending energy. It wants to do the least possible in order to preserve the status quo. So I, as I say, I think it's, very, it's probably too soon to say, but I think the forces that are necessary in order to overturn the status quo are probably even greater than the ones that have been released at the moment. I mean, the ultimate jolt, not just for America, but also for the world, would be if uh, Donald Trump did manage to defeat Hillary and become commander-in-chief. Larry, you're at the Democratic Convention. Tell us a bit about that and how likely is that? And, and how likely are Bernie supporters, who in some ways come from this insurgent background, likely to vote for Trump over Hillary? Well, I was, I was at the convention. It was a marvellous a bittersweet experience. It was bitter because my brother wasn't being nominated, and he should have been. Uh, but it was sweet because there were tens of thousands of people in the street chanting his name. So he's not gone away. Uh, so something big has happened, big and good has happened in America. Uh, Donald Trump is something big and not good in America. Uh, I don't understand, I, I, I won't pretend to understand his followers because they're not, they don't come from the world that I come from. Uh, which is not a rich world by any means, so it's not a question of elites. Uh, I don't think Trump will win. He's a, he's a very stupid man. Uh, and, he, and, he, and stupidity... 
it, it impacts on his on on campaigning and the way he responds to things. Uh, I think that uh, Bernard's supporters are not happy uh, with with uh, Hillary Clinton. She's a much inferior uh, politician, um, but I think most of them do accept what Bernard has had to accept. That between Hillary Clinton and, and Donald Trump, uh, there is a big difference, and I think the vast majority of them will vote for Clinton, and I think that will be a cause of her victory. Uh, the big question in my mind is then whether they're able to to keep on pushing and create a new movement or or expand their movement in the days to, years to come. I mean, we just talked about Trump. Larry said he's a stupid man. George and James. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn. Isn't he doing more harm than good? Isn't this social protest movement that's happening actually not that good for our representative democracy because the MPs that were chosen by their constituents by Labour to represent their democracy are being undermined by the leadership? Respond. I mean, absolutely not, obviously. Um, change doesn't just come from in Parliament, and Parliament isn't this impermeable thing, or it shouldn't be this impermeable thing, where a group of people, they get selected at some point, and then they are allowed to run everything, and they don't really have to have very much reference to their constituents or the other people who put them there. If we're going to have a parliamentary system that is democratic, that doesn't just have a veneer of democracy, it needs to actually have uh, MPs that are... Uh, representing their constituents' views. And if right now you have MPs who feel powerless, who feel that they can't control these forces that are, that, that are coming up, well, then they're probably not trying to actually uh, represent those forces as, as strongly as possible and understand what the critiques are and understand why people are pissed off and want to live in a different type of world. So, no, absolutely not. Like The fact that um, the overwhelming uh, majority of Labour members want to have a different type of party that's fit for the 21st century, that does understand uh, movements, that does understand Parliament and links those things together. Uh, I mean, that can't be something that is, is, uh, is bad for democracy. Well, look, as I, as I said in the last session, forgive me repeating it, Jeremy Corbyn has built the biggest Labour Party in history. He's built the biggest Labour Party in the whole world. There are now almost 600,000 people, some of them at grossly inflated rates of subscription, who have joined the Labour Party. Jeremy Corbyn is the best thing that has ever happened to British democracy. And our... our, our forgive me... Um, paraphrasing Marx, but philosophers merely interpret the world, the point is to change it. Roland would be unwise to imagine that this audience, God bless you all, are representative of Britain, because you're not. And because there's no anger here, doesn't mean there's no anger in the country. If you go down to Brixton today, I promise you there's a hell of a lot of anger. There's a hell of a lot of anger about the way black people are treated in Britain. There's a hell of a lot of anger amongst Muslims in Britain about how they're treated. And there's a hell of a lot of anger amongst tens of millions of working class people, most of them white, who feel abandoned, who feel that the political system has nothing in it for them, who feel that the EU that so many of you like did nothing for them. Millions, tens of millions of working class people 
I've just spent seven pounds on a paper bag full of macaroni and cheese. Seven pounds. For most people, millions and millions of people in this country, that would be simply bamboozling. Because seven pounds is what they'll have, if they're lucky, to provide dinner for all of their family this evening. This, although I love it, is not Britain. Well, I'm going to come in, in here because I know that it probably isn't going to make me popular with this particular audience, but I totally disagree with you about Jeremy Corbyn being this great force for good. Much of what Jeremy Corbyn stands for may, in principle, be very uh, admirable. But the Write problem, that down. But the Write problem that down. is... May in principle. The problem is that if you cannot lead your own MPs and you can't actually implement change in Parliament, so he has essentially completely disempowered the opposition party. And for healthy democracy, we need an opposition party that is robust and effective. And I cannot imagine that you really will sit there now and say that the Labour Party in Parliament is providing effective opposition. So I'll come back to that one second. I just want to say one additional thing, something that George said. There are lots of people that are angry, but the other thing that people also have, which they perhaps didn't have before, is hope. They do have hope because uh, things that are unexpected are happening, and the people who are meant to know what's going on and are meant to be in charge don't have a clue. They don't have a clue. No one, they, they, the Brexit wasn't meant to happen. Jeremy Corbyn wasn't, wasn't meant to win. He wasn't meant to not resign, and so on. On, the, um, on, uh, on Isabel's point, the, op the Labour Party is having uh, a, a bit of a crisis in Parliament at the moment, obviously. A bit of an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> now, this wasn't caused by... Jeremy Corbyn, the, the reason why they all tried to resign, they all tried to un, uh, uh, undermine and subvert democracy and not do it through a vote and just try to get them to resign and then things would go back to the, the way they were beforehand, isn't because of Jeremy Corbyn. It is because of the sometimes explicit, some, uh, but partly implicit critique of the way in which many people in the Labour Party have done their politics for the last 20 years. And that that politics, that way of doing politics, if you look around at centre-left parties across Europe, they are all stagnating at best and some are collapsing. That was the trajectory that, Labour, that, that kind of stagnating trajectory was where Labour were. They lost the last two general elections extremely badly. I was going to ask, and actually maybe bring Robert in on this as well, I'll give you my mic, but, or George, past years, but why has, why has centrism become a dirty word? It was, as you said, 20 years ago, the political orthodoxy. And is it really such a bad thing? It's pragmatic, everyone moves a bit to centre, the right comes a bit closer to the centre. It's, it's not the centre and it's not pragmatism that people dislike and are, uh, are, are rebelling against and are, are opposing. What they don't like is the disempowering political and econ economic order which has been controlled by 
parties that present themselves in the centre that have failed to represent people and have failed to advance their interests. That's why. It's not the idea of being in the middle that people don't like. It's not the idea of being a bit moderate and a bit pragmatic. A lot of the, I mean, if you take a lot of the things that Jeremy Corbyn is saying, they're not particularly radical about how you'd have a, how you'd have a better society. Lots of people who view themselves as being very pragmatic and very moderate would want those, uh, those same things. It's part of the revolt is how far off the political debate have been very ordinary things, like how you're not allowed to talk about very ordinary things, but we can think about, um, yeah. Okay, I want to come back to Isabel's point and um, also just make a distinction, I think, because I think uh, what Isabel says is obviously right. It's very hard for Jeremy Corbyn to lead an effective opposition, and practically speaking, that is true. We're seeing the effects of that in the parliamentary Labour Party. It's, it's difficult. Um, however, that's... I, I would classify that as a practical point, and if I want to make a kind of uh, a distinction about the underlying issue here, which is about the nature of democracy, what I'd say about the nature of democracy is that it has to include the possibility of having people vote in such a way that they do oppose the system, even the system of democracy itself. Democracy in principle has to include anti-democratic people. That's what democracy is. It's a kind of radical openness to otherness, different ideas, subversion, difficulty, strangeness. Even the outside, this is about, you know, outsider politics. Well, democracy also includes the outside of the outside, you know, who are the people still remaining kind of disenfranchised from the debate, you know, even in terms of who's in and who's out. So, you know, once we sign up to democracy, they, those things follow through from it. And the deepest question for us, I think, at the moment is, do we still believe in democracy or not? Larry. Uh, I, I, I stood in the last election as a Green, and there was a very nice, very intelligent uh, Labour Party woman standing against me. And, and in fact, it was quite comical because I was stealing things that she did in her day job as a researcher for Oxfam to prove just how unequal British society had become. Uh, and, and, but the, the sad part was that as a Labour Party representative, she had nothing to say about any of the issues. There was nothing about housing. There was nothing about remaking re, re, the health service uh, public again, taking away privatization. Uh, there was nothing about investment in society. They were going to uh, do away with the, uh, uh, the budget gap, i.e. make billions of pounds of cuts in, in every kind of service. So it was a, the, that Labour Party has nothing to say to anybody. Now, be, before I go on, I'd like to test just how uh, unangry this particular audience is. <laughs> I, I think there are a number of things that are across the whole country uh, uh, problems. Are there any people in this audience who they or their families are having trouble with getting decent housing? Anyone here having trouble getting decent housing? Let's see a show of hands. Able to afford decent housing. A significant, okay. significant percentage. And any any people here uh, concerned about the waiting or the problems in the in the underfunded and privatised national health service? Who's got concerns about the NHS? And if you, and are there people here looking after elderly relatives or other disabled relatives who find that the the loss of services from the local authority is important to them. So th this, is a, this is a society which has had really very bad governance for a long time for no good reason other than greed and, and, and ignorance. And I think that the society that we're, that all the issues that we're going to confront here today 
are based on those issues, and they run across the country. They're not just in Brixton. Important as though the, the problems that black people have in this country and Muslim people are having in this country are. <laughs> Can I, I just want to come back on this uh, Corbyn point just for a second. Um, I mean, if you take the long view here and you think about the origins of the Labour Party and what it uh, was set up to do when it you know, formed out of the Chartists and the Fabians and all the rest of it in the 19th century, it was, or at least the story goes, it was a kind of response to industrialization, giving a voice to kind of particularly working men at the time uh, and so on in order to um, organize labor on a more or less Marxist basis. And that, and of course, they went through lots of changes and so on, but the next kind of most significant change that we're aware of was under Tony Blair, the advent of new labor. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Of course, to use your phrase, New Labour is really about centrism rather than anything else. I think the real question for Corbyn now is, you know, is there a now a third, a third model? You know, is there something which doesn't just seem to be putting the car in reverse? You know, is it, is it just on an old Labour model or is it something different? And that's, I think, Corbyn's real problem. It's not the taking MPs with him. It's what's the conception here? What is the model? What's the picture? I mean, I think it's the question of if you start something that is on the outside, how do you then bring it into the inside? Isabel, you've seen this a bit with UKIP, essentially. I mean, they're obviously having their own meltdown at the moment, actually. And it looks like maybe they won't be able to make the transition from fringe to mainstream. Uh, how, how, do, how is that affected? So uh, what I think will probably happen with UKIP is that it will fade away. Uh, for any political party to be successful, it has to have a defining purpose, which clearly UKIP had. 
but doesn't need any more. It has to have discipline, which it doesn't have. It has to have financial resources. Unfortunately, that is a reality. And UKIP depends very, depends very heavily on really bottom line one person at the moment. Aaron Banks. That's right. Uh, and also it has to have charismatic leadership, which it had, whether you like him or loathe him, it did have in Nigel Farage. So it has none of those four things. Uh, I do know that what is going on at the moment is a lot of thinking uh, among people who supported Brexit about how you translate the immense groundswell of support for Brexit, which wasn't really just about whether you like or, or dislike Brussels. How do you translate that and move it on into some kind of social movement? So what I think will happen is that UKIP may almost be overshadowed by some kind of new five-star style uh, movement, which isn't even a political party. It's a kind of enormous pressure group. And I think you might potentially see Aaron Banks moving his money over to something like that. I mean, that's quite an interesting uh, question. And George, I mean, the Scottish referendum obviously caused a seismic shift in Scottish politics. There are, as Isabel just said, the first signs of that. There's also this more united, non-partisan movement, which is a liberal, progressive movement aiming to draw people who are pro-European and liberal values together. Do you think we might see such a seismic shift and fragmentation in British, in English politics? English Welsh and Northern Irish? Well, I, I do think that the current parliamentary spectrum does not represent the scale of politics in the country. UKIP got four million votes and one MP who promptly, effectively left them. Uh, Corbyn represents millions of people, but not many MPs. Uh, there are people, uh, of course, who support the European Union, but I don't think that that's going anywhere. Uh, and the UKIP transition to this five-star movement is very definitely on. I interviewed one of their MEPs on my radio show last night. He said exactly what Isabel just said, and the bank seems to be moving his money in that direction. So that won't have a reflection in Parliament either. So Parliament is increasingly uh, moved to the side. It's effectively sidelined, because most of the real politics is going on in the streets and in the big halls. Jeremy Corbyn can no longer hire halls big enough to accommodate the rallies in all kinds of places, by the way, not in Liverpool only, but in York, in Hull, in Brighton, all over the country. You can't get a hall big enough to go and hear Jeremy Corbyn. He's not even that great a speaker. <laughs> but authenticity is the new charisma. <laughs> He's authentic, he's good, he's honest, and he stands up for ordinary people. And millions of people are in the market for that kind of politics. Very true, same. <laughs> the same values that people often cited about your brother, Larry, of course, as well. Authenticity, is it the new charisma, basically? Um, Hillary Clinton doesn't really have that much charisma, but I suppose she has experience. Uh, yeah, she's got a lot, a lot of money as well. Um, yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm a little puzzled about the authenticity business. What I like about my brother is that he's honest. So, so I think honesty is, is worth quite a lot. And most politicians, 
uh, that we've had are not honest. They, they, we haven't had anybody coming out and saying, by the way, we want to uh, destroy the health service so that s some of our friends can make a lot of money. Who said that? But it's been done by two major parties, three major parties, in fact. Um, so, so, and I think Corbyn and, and my brother, by having been saying the same things, in many cases quite boringly over 30 or 40 years, uh, have, have justified themselves. And the Hillary Clintons and, and the Camerons and the, and, and the rest of them are going to have a lot of trouble shifting around, especially when so many of them are on YouTube. <laughs> Every time somebody says something, now somebody can come up with what they said two years ago. And if it's opposite to that, it doesn't look so good. Well, I agree with George's point about authenticity. I mean, one of the most remarkable and bizarre things about Jeremy Corbyn is that he has actually been at Westminster for several decades and made absolutely no impact whatsoever until the last few years. In fact, when I was a younger reporter working on the Evening Standard, I used to have a long list of people that I would ring, Labour MPs that I would ring if I was desperate for a quote generally about the Blair Brown, what we call the TBGBs, the Blair Brown rows. And um, Jeremy Corbyn was right at the bottom of my list, and I would only ring him if I was really desperate. That says more about you than it says about him. Well, it says... <laughs> now, now, let's not get personal. No, but it's the truth. No, I think what it says is about the status that he has had at Westminster and the amount of actual change that he has ever affected. And I think what has happened with Corbyn is a, a kind of enormous disparate rabble have projected their hopes and dreams onto somebody who is quite demonstrably incapable of actually implementing anything to do with them. On behalf of the enormous disparate rabble... Jeremy has been in Parliament since 1983, and the things that he's been saying since 1983 have not been liked by people in power, and they've been not been liked by the overwhelming majority of MPs in that time. That doesn't mean that what he was saying was wrong. It's been proved to have been absolutely correct. And that doesn't mean he's not able to affect things. You're simultaneously saying, Jeremy Corbyn can't do anything, and, oh, my God, he's destroying the Labour Party and he's got this disparate rabble that are ruining everything. Well, it I didn't say he can't cause destruction. I said he's not actually constructing anything. He's, I mean, as George said earlier... Disempowering, the, not empowering. You've got the larger... The, the, the Labour Party is the largest it has ever been, is the largest political party and membership in, uh, in Europe. The levels of, there are people who have not been engaged at all in politics, have been completely disempowered, who are now active. Is it a messy process? Yes, it's a messy process. Because what we're actually having much more broadly than, than uh, just in the Labour Party is we're in an inflection point. The previous set of assumptions that, uh, are, are breaking down and it's linked to changes in uh, technology, it's linked to changes in the political economy and it could go all sorts of different ways and this is one of the, uh, one of the avenues in which it could go and it's the, the most hopeful one and it is the kindest one. I'd like to open it up to the floor, but just before, we seem to have talked about Jezza quite a lot. Uh, I, out of curiosity, who in this tent uh, would like to see Jeremy Corbyn re-elected to the Labour leadership? Oh. 
probably includes quite a lot of Tories, by the way, because it's totally in the interests of the Tory party. And who would like to see him booted out? Ah, quite an even split. Well, maybe he slightly had it. Interesting. OK, questions from the floor. There are some microphones going round. Hi there. Um, nobody to the left of Tony Blair has won an election, I think, in like almost over 40 years. I'm just wondering if Corbyn gets his chance and fails and does worse than any Labour Party leader in history and Labour Party consistently keep on losing and losing and losing, at what point does the left then capitulate and say, OK, maybe we should stop moving back to more centre-ground politics and actually it's only a... While it's 600,000 Labour Party members, it's actually many fewer will end up voting for Labour. And I'm just wondering if that will ever happen or not. If he... If he if he loses in 2020 or before, what, what next? I will answer that, but why don't you put it the other way around? That Labour had a right-wing leader last time and got humped. They had a right-wing leader the time before that and they got humped. Why don't we try something different? Isn't, that, a, isn't that another way that you could put this? Are we you calling could... Ed Miliband right? Come on. I am. Soft left, I'm, I'm soft left. No, I'm calling him right. And he is one of... Corbyn's opponents and he lost miserably and Gordon Brown lost miserably and they lost miserably because people could not see and could not hear a clear difference between what Labour was saying and what the Conservatives were saying. They were both parties of war, of financial orthodoxy, they both left the banks to their own devices and the banks almost brought all of us over the precipice into the abyss. So it's time for something different. If what you say happens, I have no uh, belief that that is what will happen, that will still leave millions, tens of millions of dissatisfied people for whom the political system and the economic system isn't working. That's the key point here. People can't get a house, they can't get a council house because none have been built, they can't get a secure job. Their children are not going to have a better life than them, which was an assumption of all generations in Britain for centuries. Britain will still be hurtling around the world, involved in madcap wars and foreign adventures, spilling extremism and fanaticism, cascading everywhere. And the need for an alternative, clearly spoken, clearly represented, will remain in the unlikely hypothesis that you advance. Larry. <clears throat> well, I, <clears throat> I didn't really expect to be saying this, but I agree with much of what George has said. Uh, I can tell you that the, uh, that the Corbyn policies are not left-wing. They're very mainstream policies, and I can tell you that because he's nicked most of them from the Green Party. <laughs> and he had to do that because the Labour Party for many years has not bothered with policies. So that if you want to find something, the Green Party, although small, has been a very powerful and uh, democratic system of creating policy. And the reason I say that they're mainstream is some of the things that I was saying before. They're, in this room, which is probably not particularly left-wing, people think that they, we should have a strong public health service. Is that extreme? That there should be affordable housing that, mo that everybody can afford decent housing? Uh, that we should have investment uh, to, to make sure that people have uh, good jobs. 
that these part-time, uh, low-paid, precarious jobs are really a disaster for millions of people and for the whole economy because people on those jobs can't buy things because they don't have the money and they don't have the security to do it. So none of those are, if you put them to the population, you get 70, 80% approval of the policies to undo the bad things. They are not left-wing policies. They are practical central policies that have been tried out in many countries. Uh, the fact that they haven't been tried in this country for many years is something peculiar. And I think the peculiarity is the enormous power of this right-wing, particularly nasty, particularly violent, and particularly right-wing. And I looked them up. It's very interesting about them all. They're all billionaires, which is not exactly democratic. Not everybody is a billionaire. Not many people are billionaires. And the other thing about them is that they're all, without an exception, tax exiles. So this constant thrust about these horrible scroungers are coming from people that don't even pay their taxes, despite the fact that they've hundreds of millions of times. Not for the first time, I think that George Galloway is on cloud cuckoo land. Uh, I think that it's a great uh, sport amongst political commentators at the moment to sort of take the piss out of the polls and say that the polls are always wrong anyway, but we haven't much else to go on. And the reality is that at a time when almost half of the voting population voted against Brexit, wanted to stay in the EU, and the Tory party tore itself apart over a long period, Labour is absolutely trailing in the polls. And if they cannot make headway at the moment, what chance is there under a relatively stable and, at the moment, strong leadership from Theresa May? So I can't see uh, this ending anyway happily for the Labour Party. Question. We've got quite a lot of questions. Do we have a microphone? This lady here, I can pass you one. Thank you. Um, the, the biggest inequality in the UK today, which none of you so-called left-wing men have mentioned, is gender inequality. <laughs> and and we're, looking, <laughs> we're looking at it right here with four male speakers and one female speaker. Women are 50% of the population, yet poverty has got a female face. 90% of the most poor people in the UK are women. Uh, there's still an 18% pay gap 46 years after the Equal Pay Act. There's um, two women killed a week by their partners. There's a million cases of domestic violence every year in, this in the UK. If that was happening to any other proportion, uh, group of the population, there would be uproar about it. But because it's women, they're just ignored again and again. FGM is now at record proportions. Rape is as well. Um, when, when are any of you left-wing guys going to actually speak up or even stand over and let some women do the talk? And that, that's why we've got the Women's Equality Party. And please do join. It's for men and women. So, thank you very much. So, does the left have a women problem? Would any of you so-called left-wing men like to respond? And it is worth pointing out, by the way, that the Tory party is now on its second female prime minister and leader. Society has a has a gender problem. The left doesn't have a worse gender problem than the right. Quite the opposite. It's the Tory government. Yes, it's it's great that there's a a, a a second female prime minister. But the government that she is sat in 
80% of cuts have fallen on women. Women have been disproportionately hit by the government. I mean, though, those are, I mean, uh, uh, all, I mean, also people of colour as well, disproportionately hit by, uh, hit by the cuts. If you look at the uh, policies that are supposedly so radical and so awful and so out there that Jeremy Corbyn's um, uh, putting forward about not closing refuges, about opening new refuges, about closing the gender pay gap and, uh, 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 and all the rest of it, it's very, very clear that the left, is, the left has... Everyone has a gender problem. It is a massive, massive structural issue in our society. But the idea that the left is apparently bad at this, when it's, it is far better at advancing policies which would uh, help to close it. I would put it to you, though, that isn't part of the problem with the way the left looks at gender equality is that it is through a purely economic prism, and maybe that is not the way to solve it. Well, Jeremy Corbyn's very hot on all those issues that you raised, and yet you've been cheering every denunciation of Corbyn. Yes, he is. And he, he, uh, he presided over the first shadow cabinet in history with a majority of women in it. Didn't last long, though, did it? Well, the, the, they resigned. They resigned. It really it's not a much that Jeremy... At all. And by the, way, by the way, it was the chair that picked this panel, not us. So don't blame us for being men. But the, the, the idea... I, I, blame I'm surprised politics you, for there not being enough women I know, in politics. I, well, you, look, being a woman isn't enough. Margaret Thatcher was a bloody woman. And she destroyed this country. She destroyed the lives of millions of women and men and children in this country. Uh, playing, playing the Maggie card. Larry. Well, I, th I think I've got an easy job here. I'll play the Caroline card. Uh, I think you will find that if you wanted to support a, a woman-led party which has the policies you're talking about and has had them for many years and has forwarded them with all the strength it has, uh, you could do worse than the Green Party. Questions? Uh, there's a gentleman over there and there's a lady down here. I can pass you a microphone. Hi. Um, you've talked a bit about privatising healthcare and creating affordable housing and supporting minorities and women. Um, I'm a teacher, so I've got a bit of a... Um, yeah. But I feel, and a lot of teachers, I think, feel that education is often used as quite a pawn in politics, and how do you see your parties or fringe politics? Um, how does it affect education, and how can education affect the politics as well? Well... <coughs> I think the, uh, for the Green Party and certainly for myself, the academization, the free school business is, is a dead end. It's destructive in many ways and it doesn't lead anywhere good. Some, some academies I'm sure are good schools, uh, many are not good schools, they've wasted a lot of money, uh, they're not proportionate, they pop up wherever they pop up and so that you don't get an equal spread of extra money. Uh, the enormous uh, attempt to, to corral teachers, I'd, I'd love to know how you think about it. To my eyes, it looks like an over, completely over-the-top attempt to control education and to control people. The, the Green Party is taking its lead from, from Finland, where the, what they've done is, is not going for so much testing, but they've gone in for paying teachers well and training them well. 
and their, their results are astonishing. And, and the idea of doing, uh, I, I have got grandchildren and, and they're, they're over pressured uh, from a very young age and it's not good for them. Uh, so there are a lot of things wrong with education today and certainly more control to teachers and certainly more respect for teachers uh, and, and an end to this ridiculous academy it would be a big step forward. Well, to me personally, uh, certainly in terms of our topic today, the bigger and more pressing question is on the NHS, the future of the NHS and healthcare. And I mean, the reality is that the NHS is not sustainable in its current form. It is under far too much pressure. It doesn't matter how much money we throw at it. In its current form, we cannot keep it this way. And in terms of the context of this debate, the problem is that whilst virtually every politician I know from every party privately admits that the NHS can't last like this, it is not something that they can ever touch politically because they see it as a complete instant political doom. So the question is, is the force that saves the NHS ultimately going to come from outside politics? And I suspect that that is the only way we are going to be able to have free health care at the point of need. Robert. Yeah, I just want to connect the, the two questions about education and about health, because it seems to me we've got a very British disease here, which is that we fiddle with the infrastructure, committees, uh, regulation, boards, and so on, rather than concentrating on what goes on in the classroom or what goes on within the hospital in terms of patient care. I think that, you know, it's a very British thing. Our answer to everything is a committee or a review or a restructuring. And again and again, you know, those things merely repeat the underlying issues. So I very much support what you say there, actually. You know, it's the quality of teaching that matters in education, not putting in place more and more structures around it. What matters in hospitals is the quality of patient care. And I'm pleased these issues are being uh, raised, gender inequality, health, education, and so on, because actually, when we end up just talking about Jeremy Corbyn, and I'm not uh, a left person, I may be a man, but I'm not a left person... <laughs> Um, we end up having a very parochial debate. And actually, the most important questions aren't just health and education, but they're climate change, they're terrorism, and actually their mental health, probably increasingly. And those are the things we need to think about. We absolutely can fund the NHS and the NHS as a national health service, not um, with uh, internal markets, wasteful internal markets and part privatisation, which is what we're seeing. What you have uh, said is the argument that has been put forward to uh, open up the NHS and actually make it more... Uh, make it less efficient. The amount of uh, the percentage of the NHS budget that goes on administration and bureaucracy goes up because we, uh, you have more and more people who have to, to go into complex bidding processes in order to uh, in order to win a contract to do something else. It's very good for lawyers. It's very good for management consultants. It's very very bad for the bottom line and it's bad for health outcomes. Those are the pressures which are being put on the NHS, and we could not do that. And of course, we could properly fund the NHS. Okay, we've only we've only got time for a oh, final point for Larry. When I'll be, time I'll for be parochial as the, as the health spokesperson, health and social care spokesperson for the Green Party. I can tell you, you are one thousand percent wrong. 
the, the, NA, the NHS spends less than any other industrial country on healthcare, and it does a fairly good job within that. Given decent funding and taking away the, the extravagance of the PFI, Private Finance Initiative, introduced by Labour, of course, supported by the Tories and the Lib Dems, has cost us billions of pounds of shifted money directly into the banks from, from the health service, not available, with a, with a very small, well, a, a substantial increase in, in funding, which would bring us up to line with the other countries, industrial countries, we could have an extremely good uh, uh, health service. And if we brought the social care into the health service, which is my party's policies, we would have a lovely, well, lovely, it's a hard time being old, but it would be easier under those circumstances. Brilliant. We've got one final question at the back. Isabel, you're a big uh, supporter and fan of Brexit. Can you just tell me how Brexit helps the NHS when every senior doctor, every scientist in this country who works together to uh, find cures and progress science, progress the NHS, we've got the um, EU uh, doctors working in the NHS. Can you tell me why Brexit helps the NHS? Well... I'm not quite sure how that has a direct bearing on the topic today, but I would say that if we are able to liberate some of the money that is currently being squandered in Brussels to bring it back to our NHS, then that will help patients. Ah, oh, you've got a fan, you've got a fan. Uh, on that rather inflammatory note, I'd like to uh, join, hope you join with me in thanking our excellent and expert panel. And all of you for your questions and your input. Thank you. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.